0: And now hear God's holy word from Psalm 47. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For Yahweh most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day of celebration and rejoicing and reflection and contemplation on the ascension of our Savior and King. Uh, cause our hearts to rejoice in him and to, to clearly understand what this ascension means for us and for the world. And so guide us through this study together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. By most accounts and by most measurements, it seems that people do not finish what they start on the internet. At least when it comes to news articles and written commentary, statistically, very few readers get through the entire piece of writing. Somewhere between 5 and 20% of readers actually read to the bottom of a story. The greatest majority of people glance at the headline, they scroll down a little bit, they look at something else, they might catch a graphic or an read a few sentences, and they click away to the next thing. Uh, eye scanning technology shows that people tend to read on the internet in an F-shaped pattern. You read the top, you read a little bit, you scroll down, you read a little bit more, and then you scroll down, you click away to something else. Um, one study showed that something like 70% of Facebook users will comment on an article after reading only the headline, which is no surprise to any of us that people don't read the articles, they just comment on the headline. There's an inverse proportion of people who read entire articles to the number of people who retweet them. So it, it, you get that. Most people who read all the way to the end don't retweet. Most people who don't read the whole article do retweet <laughs> articles. Now granted, internet news and, and sources on the web, they're their own worst enemies when it comes to retaining the attention of readers scenes are or, or screens are so cluttered with uh, with ads and links and distractions, and the very act of reading something on a screen rather than reading on on paper seems to me to be more prone to a kind of casual disconnected reading than a serious studious reading. But the point remains that when it comes to internet reading, which is the most popular source of information gathering today. When it comes to internet reading, people bail out before the end. In a similar way, it's easy to see where the church today bails out on reading the Gospels. We don't need a study or we don't need eye-tracking technology to see where we bail out on the Gospels, practically speaking. You can locate the precise point in the life of Jesus where we think we have nothing more to talk about. We have nothing more to celebrate. We have nothing more to read. And if we use our feast days... And if we use our most popular hymns today as a metric, it looks like we stop celebrating, we stop reading, we stop teaching and contemplating, we stop finding things to sing about right around the resurrection. Resurrection, we've got Easter, Easter we understand, and as far as the gospel is concerned, as far as the life of Jesus is concerned, we're done, we're out, we don't have anything else to rejoice in or celebrate. Well, certainly the resurrection of Jesus is the high point of the Gospels, but the resurrection is not the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them and encouraging them and preparing them for what was ahead. He appeared in his resurrection body before different groups of people, as small as two as large as 500 in attendance. And only after all of these events was he taken up into heaven, he was received into a cloud, and he was removed from the sight of the apostles. And it's remarkable that Jesus didn't die and leave behind a body. Uh, Jesus didn't, uh, didn't transform into something else. He didn't sprout wings and become an angel. He ascended Physically, bodily into God's glory cloud, and was transported into heaven. And the next time we see Jesus is at uh, Stephen's execution, where Jesus is standing at the Father's right hand. The heavens are open, and Stephen can see Jesus rising in defense of his of his servant. And like I said earlier, this last Thursday was Ascension Day, forty days after Easter. So we remember and we celebrate the ascension on the nearest Sunday, which is today, which is helpful to remind us of the importance of the ascension. The crucifixion is obviously a vital part of the gospel. The resurrection is a vital part, but the gospel is not complete without the ascension. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we rehearse the story of Jesus' life, and we confess that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from heaven. I'm sorry, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. We recite and confess that every Lord's day. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, God the Father, the Almighty. Yet for most churches in our generation, the ascension is just kind of an afterthought. We don't know what to do with it. What does it mean? It's a uh, it's an odd little footnote to Good Friday and Easter. We've done Easter. There's nothing more to celebrate until Christmas. But Again, the gospel is not a disposable internet article. We can't afford to click away before we're finished reading. So let's reflect on and rejoice in the ascension of our Lord Jesus using the words of Psalm 48, which is that enthronement psalm which overflows with joy over the prospect of our King sitting in power over the whole earth. And the truth that he is going to subdue the nations. He is going to rule. Our man, our representative, is in charge. Many of you can probably sing the metrical version of Psalm 47. It tends to be a, a popular one that, that we've sung. Uh, we sing, um, all people clap your hands with joy. Uh, I'm out of, uh, I'm out of uh, singing energy right now. I'm going to try <laughs> All people, clap your hands for joy. Everyone knows we could probably sing that together without even looking at the words. But let's walk through this uh, line by line. Uh, Verse one, oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Clapping is the most instinctive automatic reflex we have to something that is so incredibly joyful that we're moved to participate bodily in the joy? Why do people feel the need to clap along with a song at a, at a concert? Why, why do they feel the need to clap at a performance? This is so happy and this is so joyful that I can't just sit here. I can't sit on my hands. I have to show my appreciation. I have to participate in some way. Shouting is right behind hand clapping. If I get happy, I need to make noise. It's so basic to us that you don't have to teach a baby to shout when they're happy. You don't have to teach a child to clap their hands and make noise when they're when they're joyful. You have to tell them not to more than you have to tell them to do it. It's when we get older and moody and, and ungrateful that we get self-conscious about expressing too much joy. We don't want to express too much joy. But the call to participate in the benefits of the ascension of Jesus in Psalm 47, the call to participate is a call to clap and to shout, all you peoples. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Everybody, nobody gets to sit on their hands. Nobody gets to clamp their hand over their mouth and not sing at what uh, God is about to do through his king. Verse two, for Yahweh most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He is all powerful. He is all glorious. He is over everything. He is over all the earth. He isn't a family God or a local deity you burn incense to at your local shrine. He's king over everything that exists. Verse three, he will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. Nobody stands up to him and wins. Nobody can resist his power. He beats down all idolatry and unbelief and perversion and superstition, and he puts it under his feet and our feet, so as to liberate us, to deliver us and give us a good inheritance. His victory wins us a great bounty. Remember from Revelation 19 last week, how we see that the victory of Christ as he rides out on his white horse with his sword and his rod to subdue the nations. His victory is our victory. He subdues the people under us, the psalmist says. In verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, Yahweh, with the sound of a trumpet. We've seen uh, Super Bowl parades. We've seen World Series parades. In St. Louis, we see a lot of World Series parades, by the way. (laughs) People line the streets to celebrate the victory of their heroes. At one time in history, there were ticker tape parades for... People welcoming astronauts back from the moon or welcoming war heroes back from, uh, back from overseas. Crowds line the sidewalks. They shout. They clap. They make a big scene. When you've gone out and won a victory and you've come back home, you make a big deal over receiving the returning champion. Now, what was the scene in heaven like? when Jesus ascended back to his father after his earthly ministry, after his incarnation, after his life of perfect obedience before the face of the father, after the darkness of Gethsemane, after the pain and suffering and the shame of the cross, after defeating the grave, after defeating death in his resurrection, after 40 more days of ministering, when Jesus finally ascended to the throne, what kind of welcome party of angels and saints, what kind of welcome party uh, of martyrs met him there? Led, led by the Father and the Spirit who were both waiting on him. That's why we get this phrase, God has gone up with a shout, with the voice of a trumpet, what did that sound like for tens of thousands and thousands of thousands of hosts of angels singing and rejoicing and playing their instruments, blowing their trumpets? Can you imagine the overwhelming, ear-melting sound of triumph when Jesus ascends as the returning champion, as the returning hero? Can you get can you get kind of a picture of that? Okay, now you and I are called to join that party. Verse 6, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. How many times were you keeping track? How many times are we told to sing praises? Five times in two verses. Sing praises. Sing praises. Sing praises. Don't ever stop. Don't, don't hit pause. Keep that song on repeat because He never ceases to be good. We never cease to be grateful. All praise goes to Him. And because all praise goes to Him, we're kind of jealous for praise that belongs to Him that goes other places. We're jealous of the attention that idols get and and attention that men get for things that Jesus has done. We're suspicious of all rivals to His glory and His power. And then, and then it says, sing with understanding. Sing praises with understanding in verse seven. There's wise, logical, rational, theological content to our praise. We're not just making noise to make noise. We're singing and praising with understanding. We're not just raising a racket because it's emotionally stimulating to do so. There's a, there's a reason for our praise. And we get that in verses eight and nine. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together. The people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. We rejoice in this king because his rule is undisputed. His purposes will come to pass. The shields of earth belong to God. What does that mean? It means all of the emblems and all of the banners and all of the insignia And all of the weapons, all the implements that are truly effective and powerful are his property, and he commands them what to do. It's he who shields the earth, not our wealth, not our technology, not uh, our hubris, that none of this shields the earth. It is God through his son, Jesus, who reigns, who shields the earth. Now, the event that inspires the psalmist to break out in this exuberant praise is something that would happen far in his future, but for us, the ascension of our Lord Jesus, his going up with a shout, his enthronement over all the earth is near. It's objective. It is a present reality for us. It affects our lives and the lives of the whole world. I wanna give you five ways Briefly, that the ascension of Jesus directly affects everything, our lives and the world. One, because Jesus has ascended and has taken his seat on his throne, we are assured that his work as as Lord and Messiah continues. Because he has taken his throne, his work continues. It hasn't ended. Over in Psalm 110, Um, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In Psalm 110, David sings, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus is presently ruling from his throne and he stays at his throne until his enemies are subdued. He, he fights for us and with us from his throne by his decrees and by his spirit and through his church. So that means the Jesus that we worship is not some long dead, irrelevant prophet who has no further interest or involvement in running the world. He, he's not disconnected from our lives or present uh, events. He didn't live a life way back when just to inspire us and then just go away. You know, say some interesting things for us to reflect on. That's not the purpose of the coming of the Lord Jesus. He came to rule over the cosmos. That's why he came. You know what? He accomplished what he came to do. He did what he set out to do. In the words of Acts that I read just a few minutes ago, Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Luke recognized that the life of Jesus was only the beginning of his work, and his work through his church was only the beginning of his work. His ascension was not the end of his messianic work of doing and teaching and healing. His ascension was the start of the new phase of his work as Lord. A long time ago when we studied uh, the book of Acts together, I repeatedly referred to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Lord Jesus. We we typically call it, throughout history, we've called the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, and that's that's fine. I understand what we're saying there, but it's it's specifically because of what Luke says in the introduction, these are also the Acts of the Lord Jesus, because that book is about what Jesus did through his people, through his body, through his church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, while he ruled from heaven. So, what does this mean for us? It means that Jesus hasn't abandoned us to our own strategies, to our own devices. He hasn't left us to figure things out for ourselves. He hasn't left us to just roll up our sleeves and try to be, you know, find some clever, innovative way to be the church. He has clearly communicated what pleases him. And it's only by faithfulness to the reigning king over all the earth that we get to participate in the growth of his kingdom, and in blessing and in happiness. He is directing us presently by his ascension. We know that he is directing us personally, intimately, as truly as he did his apostles uh, when he was with us on the earth. He is doing so today through his word and through his spirit. His enthronement and his ascension mean that he, he continues to reign. Secondly, the second blessing of the ascension of Jesus, his ascent made the way for the Holy Spirit's descent. In John 16, Jesus was preparing his apostles for his departure, and he told them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This was spoken as a promise. This was a good thing that that he goes away and he sends the Spirit. This is a better way. And it was intended to be received as a better way. Despite the apostles' grief at the prospect of losing Jesus, indeed the Spirit would come and work in all kinds of ways that Jesus could not in his earthly body. Jesus in his body couldn't be everywhere at once, but the Spirit could. Jesus couldn't be wherever his people were gathered, scattered as they were over all the earth, but the Spirit could be with them and unite them all together. Jesus couldn't baptize everyone, but the Spirit does to everyone who is born again. Jesus couldn't physically preside over every table every Lord's Day, but the Spirit does. And we really and truly eat with Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord promised through his prophet Joel, he said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And this promise is fulfilled by the heavenly, exalted, enthroned Lord Jesus. The ascended Lord sent his spirit to be present with his people, to empower them for their mission, to transform us and our lives by, by reflecting the life of our king. By the spirit you have a direct relationship with the triune God. And this was initiated by the ascension of Jesus. What he said in John six, I go away so I can send the spirit. Thirdly, the ascension of Jesus has exalted humanity and the ascension of Jesus affirms the goodness of creation. It's it's a source of endless wonder to me, and one of one of the reasons why Ascension Sunday is one of my favorite days of the year. And I really think we ought to make a bigger deal out of it. You know, we have Christmas trees and Easter baskets and Ascension. You know, everybody ought to take off school. All the post office should close. I mean, everything should shut down so we could really rejoice on Ascension Day. And I don't know what all that would look like, but we should have the conversation. And the reason that is such a uh, such an amazing truth and and. And wonderful thing to celebrate is because of this, Jesus, who was truly and is truly fully man, has been taken up in his new glorified, perfect, sinless resurrection body. And now a man is seated all over all creation. A man is seated at the right hand of God. A man is enthroned over the cosmos, just as God intended for Adam before he fell. Now that purpose has been realized. God's purpose for man has always been ascension and enthronement, and then descension and dominion. And the, uh, you 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 are are enthroned in the presence of God, and then you go down and you take dominion over over the earth. When God created. Adam and Eve, he gave him a garden sanctuary to meet with him in. That garden was on a high place. And we know that because it had four rivers flowing out of it. Rivers don't tend to flow uphill. They flow downhill. And if you have four rivers flowing out of this place, it's got to be on a pretty high place. Adam ascends into the garden sanctuary to meet meet with God. And then he's told there to go out and take dominion over, over all the earth. Uh, Mount Sinai was also a place where Moses went up the mountain, met with God. Moses ascended and then was given God's law to then go back down the mountain and apply to the people and to the to the nation. The temple, the tabernacle, and the temple were a port, the the tabernacle was a portable mountain. It, you ascend into the temple, and later the temple was built on a mountain. You ascend up to the to the temple. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus ascends up with Peter, James, and John, and then when they get back down the mountain, they have have things to do at the bottom of the mountain. So Jesus has ascended, and we climb the mountain in worship every Lord's Day, and then he sends us back down the mountain to take to take dominion. This ascension of Jesus then has fulfilled God's intention for mankind. The Lord Jesus has gone up and he has been seated as our representative and he will return and complete the transformation of earth, the dominion of earth. Remember in our study in Revelation, I said from here on out, everything's earthward. Everything's coming, but everything is descent because uh, 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 heaven is the starting place. And earth is the target. Earth is the focus of all the work of the the heavenlies. Uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is in, in heaven is the prayer. And this thought is an endless source of comfort to me. That a man... Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father and speaks to God the Father with a human tongue, praying, interceding, praising God with human words, our words. Just think about what that means. That's good news for humanity. Despite all of the ways that we are stained and imprisoned by sin, despite all the failures and frailties of human flesh, despite our terrible track record of disobedience, God still intends to to redeem and restore and enthrone mankind. Frail human flesh and blood and all its vulnerability has been taken by Jesus. Jesus has taken humanity right to the heart of heaven's throne room. Humanity is received by God. And if this doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will, but that now human flesh has been incorporated into the Trinity, in the body of Jesus. Now man stands with Father and Spirit. The man Jesus stands in God. We sang the Ascension hymn this morning, See the Conqueror, Mounts in Triumph. We only sang 10 verses of that. There are 14, um, but we only sang 10, so we gave you a little break today. But my favorite is verse 5. He has raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There with him in glory stand. Jesus reigns adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. The ascension of Jesus provides us with this hope that God intends to do the same thing with us, that he will overcome all the ugliness of our sin and sorrow and scars and sickness by the brightness of his glory. He will embrace us, men and women. He will receive us and welcome us into the heart of the heavenly court as well. Jesus' ascension into heaven means that all of creation has great worth. The fact that human flesh and blood are welcome in the presence of God shows us that God intends to redeem us and creation, not to destroy us, not to destroy creation. Your bodies and the world around us are not disposable things, and they're not things that we must despise. We are created as image bearers and dominion takers over the whole earth, which God delighted in creating. When God creates the world, he says, very good, very good, very good. It makes God happy to create, and it makes God happy to create people of different colors and different shapes and different faculties and different gifts. And this big, wild, diverse, crazy race of humans is the arena of God's delight and joy and the focus of his attention and redemption the ascension of Jesus, the man, never forget that, that Jesus, the man, has ascended. It shows us that humanity has been assigned an inestimable eternal worth. And as an image bearer of the triune God, you are exceedingly valuable. You have a beauty and a glory as God's creation that you must never detest. You must never despise, despite our society's constant pressure to destroy the image of God on you and in you, the pressure to maim yourself or to mar, to distort the the image of God, to be ashamed of the image of God, to warp the God-given glory of man and the glory of woman. If we would have a full appreciation and understanding of the ascension, we would see there that the the elevation of of humanity there, that that Jesus is the end of man. Jesus is the eschatological man. Jesus is the future of man, which means that Jesus is always a man with the glory of a man. And he's betrothed to a bride who is full of the glory of the bride. Paul calls it a great mystery, but the church is the eschatological woman And in some wonderful ways, these attributes of manhood and womanhood, as God designed them, this is not a construct of human culture. This is not a construct of human invention. We don't become men because when we were two years old, somebody gave us a truck and you don't become a woman because when you were two years old, somebody gave you a doll. That's not, that's not how it works. God has created and designed manhood and womanhood. And these are designed in such a way that creation itself is present eternally. The church never ceases to be the bride. Jesus never ceases to be the mighty bridegroom. Eschatological humanity, future humanity is binary. Binary. It is male and it is female. And what that means is all the twisting and all the perversion of God's created order that you see around you, it's not going to last. It's got a very short shelf life. It has an expiration date. The elevation and the glorification of man, both male and female, comes by submitting to the ascended man. The future is male and female. And uh, you might as well just get on board with that because that's the way it's going to be for eternity. So in the ascension, God has exalted, uh, human flesh and all that comes, all that comes with that. Fourthly, and quickly, Jesus has ascended to be our mediator and our great high priest. Because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, our prayers have somewhere to go. Our prayers have an address. They don't just go out into the void. Our petitions are carried by the Spirit to Jesus, and Jesus hears them and turns, and he shares those prayers with his Father. You know that uh, Hebrews 4 says we have this great high priest, not a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one that was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have an advocate who sits at the right hand of the father, who speaks directly into the father's ear, overriding the threats, the accusations, the doubts, and the fears spread by our enemy and his minions. And he is a high priest who can hear whatever we bring to him at whatever time we bring it to him, no matter where we are. During Jesus's earthly ministry, he was limited by uh, geographical constraints. He couldn't heal a blind man in Jerusalem while teaching his disciples in Jerusalem. He couldn't be everywhere at once. But now he is at work everywhere all the time, sympathizing with our struggles and promising to do whatever we ask by faith in his name. And Because we have this access, we are commanded to go boldly into his heavenly courtroom and approach his throne of grace with confidence, Nothing to fear. Boldly, confidently approach him in prayer, in worship, in private prayer, where we are raised up by the Spirit of God into the presence of the Almighty. And that means the Lord's day is our ascension day. We are lifted up by the Spirit into his glory cloud. Jesus' ascension has given us access to the Father. Through Jesus, the man, our prayers, our needs are granted immediate access to his ear and the heart of the Creator. When we pray and when we sing and when we lift up supplications today in worship, uh, they don't get lost at the post office. They go directly to the ear of the Father, through our high priest Jesus. Fifthly and lastly, because it is Jesus who is sitting on heaven's throne, his victory is guaranteed. We heard it in Psalm 47. Uh, We heard exactly uh, what what, uh, we can look forward to. His, uh, for Yahweh most high is awesome. He is great king. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. The Lord Jesus, who by the way is your Savior, who is your friend, who is your brother, he's the king of all creation. He is sovereign over all. Wicked men in places of power are not in control. Oppressors and despots and terrorists and murderers and warmongers are not in control. Jesus is Lord and king of all. Your feelings are not in control. Your doubts and your anxieties and your fears are not in control. Jesus is King and Lord of all. So we can rejoice in this in spite of our own weakness, in spite of, in spite of wicked men conspiring to take uh, uh, power. This is why we don't have to worry, because Jesus sits on his throne over all the earth, which means he's Lord over whatever you're worrying about today or whatever consumed your thoughts this past week. He's, he's king over that. He's more powerful than that. He's Lord over your questions and uncertainties. He's Lord over the things that are bringing you doubts and depression and pain. He is king. He is king of Cary. He is king of the Triangle. He is king of Wake County. He is king of North Carolina. He's king of the United States and North America and the whole earth. He's not just Lord of the church. He's not just the Lord of your thoughts. He's not just the Lord of Sunday morning. He is the Lord over every sphere of human life. Jesus is King and Lord of everything, and therefore must be acknowledged and worship, uh, worshiped in everything. Remember that Jesus' ascension broadcasts the truth that he is presently reigning as King and he remains active and engaged in our world and our lives. Therefore, there's nothing left for you to do, but live boldly and confidently and strategically as servants of the exalted King of heaven. Know that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. You don't live in secret. You don't think in secret. You don't act in secret. He hears and he knows. You, you aren't hiding anything. You couldn't do it if you tried. Confess your sins. Give it up. Ask him to help you to hate your sin the way he hates it. Try and see then if he doesn't beat it down beneath your feet, as he will all enemies. So much of our problem in trying to fight besetting sin is that we try to fight it in our own willpower. We try to fight it in our own determination, our own strength, which are all extremely limited resources. You will run out of willpower. You will run out of determination. Why are you trying to fight this all on your own? The Lord Jesus is enthroned over everything, even the things that tempt you and turn your heart away. You can't fight them on your own, but he can and he will. Align your desires and your motives with the desires and motives of the one on the throne and call out to him for strength and for fortitude in the hour of testing. And the king of all the earth will hear and will deliver. That is why we rejoice in him on this Ascension Sunday and rejoice in his ascension because by it, all of these things are true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our King and our Lord. We thank you for lifting him up to your right hand and we thank you for the way he continues to reign over us. And so Father, fill us with your spirit that we might carry out his kingdom agenda every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.